through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And the church said, Amen. Like a few technical difficulties, you guys can be seated. How are you? Good. Welcome. If you guys are new here, um, my name is Josiah, and I'm one of the pastors on staff. Uh, our lead pastor Ryan, he is on vacation. If you follow him on Instagram, you'll know that he's having a blast um, up in uh, the Asheville Mountains. What is that? The Blue Ridge Mountains? Yeah. Okay. Because um, there is a, the Smoky Mountains, Blue Ridge, they close. My geography is terrible. Um, but, uh, but he's up there somewhere and, and having a lot of fun. And uh, so we are continuing our series, though. Uh, actually, we're, we're finishing out our series on prayer, in, uh, which is called Knowing God. We've been looking at the book of Ephesians. And uh, we're looking at Paul's prayers to the Ephesians and uh, in chapter 1 and in chapter 3. So today we're finishing out um, and we're coming to the doxology. The doxology is where we end here in Paul's prayer in chapter 3. Um, this is the climax of Paul's prayer to the Ephesians. Uh, and it's what all of this has come to. The results or the outworking, if you will, of, of, of such a prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesians. Uh, let's just quickly in bullet point um, review what he has prayed thus far. And these have been our weeks. Um, he prayed in chapter 1 to start um, that the, the church would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. He prayed that their hearts would be enlightened to know the hope to which they have been called uh, the riches of the inheritance that is theirs in Christ and the greatness of Christ's power toward them who believe. He also prayed for strength through his being God's spirit in their inner being. He prayed that they would be rooted and grounded in love and that they would have the strength to comprehend what is Christ's love, the breadth of it, the length of it, the height of it, and the depth of it. He prayed and the culmination of all of these things that they would be filled with the fullness of God. And then today we pick up where we're at. And we've worked really, really hard to unpack these things and to um, talk about the implications of these each of these things each week. And today I want to ask the question, what, for what purpose? For what purpose, right? We've talked about a lot of it, but in the grand scheme of thing, things, why? Why are we? Why is Paul praying these things? Why ought we to pray these things? A doxology um, comes from, it, it takes its roots in ancient Jewish temple worship. 
and uh, later on is adapted into church liturgy. Um, and it was, a, it was a common uh, thing done every week and is uh, done still commonly today. And the, we see remnants of it all throughout Scripture, though. In the Old Testament, if you would more than likely find a doxology beginning with the word blessed or blessed. Uh, for instance, when Abraham's servant found Rebekah, who would later become Isaac's wife, he said, I bow, or bowing his head, he worshiped Jehovah and said, blessed be Jehovah, the God of my master Abraham. His response to God fulfilling what he had been praying for was, blessed be Jehovah, blessed be Jehovah. In the New Testament, we see repeated phrasing of glory to God. And the real common one would be Jude's doxology that we see. He says, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. Another common one is the Lord's Prayer. And on, although at the end of it, the, uh, in the earliest manuscripts, this portion has been left out, still many um, translations will include it. And if you know it, say it, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This common word you hear too in the New Testament is amen. Amen. Most commonly, doxologies will be read over the people as they gathered and the congregation would respond with amen amen just that's why we just did it a second ago over the years this uh, has been adapted into songs and put to melodies for god's people to sing most notably gloria and excelsis deo right you know gloria like wins the award for the longest syllable in any song and, and also their song, uh, Doxology. The, it's just called Doxology, right? Um, we sing it regularly here. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Him. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So now, why am I taking so much time to talk about a doxology um, to unpack it for us? Paul prays some really, really big things. Some really heavy and weighty things for the church. He prays that they would be filled with the fullness of God. And what does that mean? Well, if you don't, go back and listen to last week's sermon. But he prays these huge things, and a doxology is a reminder to us that there is no prayer too big for God. It's a reminder of both the source of these things we pray for and the purpose of these things we pray for, both the beginning and the end, both the producer of our faith and the evidence thereof. It is a reminder that God is both our object, our subject. He's the enabler of us praying and he is the recipient of all of our prayers. This is so important for us to understand, to have this grand view, this enlarged view of God, who he is and what he's done for us. Because without it, we we won't be able to pray as we ought to. Without a scale of whom we pray to, we will undoubtedly pray small and pathetic prayers. We want to pray big prayers. We want to grow in our prayers. 
not just in the amount that we pray, but also in the subject matter in which we pray. And most importantly, in the faith by which we pray our prayers. But we need to have a scale of understanding, like who are we praying to? And I don't mean that we can somehow measure God. He's boundless. He's limitless, right? I mean, to do so would be like to measure a flea to the Atlantic Ocean or something you know, like that and, and much more. We have no idea how to compare God to anything because he is not like anything. He is other than, boundless, limitless. And we see Paul in this text get kind of vexed at this almost when he starts this doxology. When he tries to speak to God and who he is. In verse 20, he says, To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. So Paul's first, he tries to qualify who him is, you know, talking to him, but probably immediately feels uh, very underqualified when he um, starts to talk about God. But we look carefully at this language here, it reveals that it's, it's, it's lavish and it's gratuitous. And Paul seems to be pushing the boundaries of his vocabulary just to speak to who God is. It uses these compound superlatives in it to get his point across. And the exact translation would be something more like this. To him who is able above all things to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think. It's just like compound and it just kind of just shows us the inadequacy of our language. Like we just, we, you could add word to, to, you know, superlative on top of superlative, add a multiply in whichever way you want. And it just doesn't get the exact point across, you know. And I could see Paul's just like frustration almost in this. He's like, I, in my heart, I want to say the words that are correct, but I just don't have them. I see a man here who's just been overwhelmed by the awesomeness of God and praying for this church. And he has this growing anxiousness to spill out an adoration and praise. But when he tempts, he's met with this incompetence to carry it out. It reminds us of how incapable we are to really explain God away, right? I mean, I feel this all the time. I'm, Micah is like my go-to guy whenever I'm trying to figure out a word. Because he's, he's, he's like a, a dictionary. And, uh, but it, often it happens when I'm talking to him and I'm like, what's the word? What's the word? And I just can't think of it. I want to say something and I just can't say what I want to say. That's why I have to have everything written here, guys. And I'm just scripted here. Um, Like, I cannot think on the fly words that I want to say. Um, I know his pain in this. But it reminds us here that God is unexplainable. And we can try as we may. But we just can't explain him with our own words. Still... As many prayers and as large scale as our prayers can be, you and I could pray, however large a prayer we could pray, or think for that matter that he's telling us, God is able to deliver on infinitely more. God is able to deliver on infinitely more. The point is, his capacity for giving to his people, to his church, to his sons and daughters, far exceeds our ability to ask. His capacity to give far exceeds our ability to ask or think. Let's look at these two portions here. More than we can ask or more than we can think. 
or, or vocalize or internalize, however you want to say it. Sorry, I have a bug flying around me. Got you too? That's going to be in the recording and no one's going to know what I'm talking about. The stage bug. More than we can ask. Because God is able to do more than we can ask, you can ask for the impossible. Because God is able to do more than we can ask, you can ask for the impossible. There is a a song by John Newton. And one of the verses in there, he says, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such none can ever ask too much. And God is not some like magic genie, right? Just granting wishes for us. I mean, we do pray for things that do not come to pass. But here's the deal. We never leave empty handed. I promise you will never leave empty handed. It is impossible to come to God and to leave empty handed. He may not give you what you're asking for, but he never, never leaves out what you need. And that's not some kind of like Christian cop out. I'm not trying to just dodge, you know, the difficult questions in life. We do pray for things that 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 um, that are really, really hard and difficult and and they don't come to pass. You might have tried to conceive children and still you lay barren. You might have tried to get a job that you really, really wanted and you were denied that job or your friend or family has been really sick and things only seem to get worse. I'm not trying to dodge away that. That's, there's a hard questions in life. But God always, always gives us what we need. And we must see that God is able to do more, not just in a degree of what we're asking for, but also in subject matter. God is able to do above and beyond even what we're asking. Meaning we sometimes ask for the right thing, but with just too little faith. But then often we ask just, you know, for the wrong thing altogether. But believing that God is able, believing God is able, it means that you trusting he is able to do what we ask, but also he will do even what we don't ask. That's how big God is. Even the things we don't ask, God will do. In the words of the late Garth Brooks, some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. Well, you know, that's not exactly correct, right? God always answers his prayers. He just doesn't always answer the way we like, always, right? But praise God that he is able to do not just what we ask, or as John Stott says, he works beyond our prayers. Praise God. He also is able to work and answer more than we think. And so on the other hand, often we're left to ourselves and left to our own thoughts, and and we, we don't vocalize our prayers to God. We just kind of internalize everything. And we may do this because we're timid about, you know, maybe asking for the wrong thing, or we distrust God, um, that we trust that he even cares about the things that we're asking, or worse, that he's able to even do the things that we're asking him to do. So to the timid, I'd say this, you cannot hide from God your deepest thoughts. As the psalmist said, even before word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it all together. You cannot hide your thoughts from God. And because he is able to do more than you think, you can ask the desires of your heart 
and not worry about whether you're asking the right thing or the wrong thing. Because he's not limited by your limited understanding. He's not limited by your limitedness. And to the distrusting, maybe, I would simply say that you do not trust God because you don't know him. You need to know God. You need to know him. You're more likely either afraid of him or you've domesticated him because both of those things will lead to a distrust. Either being afraid of God or, dis- or, or domesticating him. The first is really more obvious, right? I mean, we, it, things we don't understand, we, we tend to fear or we tend to be very cautious of and we, we always keep in the side of our eye and making sure we, you know, because we, we just don't trust what, what that is. We don't understand it. So you may be here today and, and you, you say, I believe in a higher power. I believe there's something out there. But whatever it is, who could know if it's good? Let me tell you that this God is knowable. That he has revealed himself in all of creation. He's self-evident in his creation, as Romans 1 tells us. And more than that, he has become personal and made himself known, namely through his son, Jesus Christ. That he is the image of the invisible God, the word of God tells us. God is knowable. And if you know him, then you will see that he is indeed trustworthy. We also distrust God because we place him in a level, on a level that, that he's not. He's not. One that's maybe closer to you or I, just to make him feel more comfortable to us, right? Maybe more comfortable to be around. We can say, God is my friend. Well, yes, he is definitely your friend. He's at least your friend, but he is so much more than that. He is firstly your God and your king. And you cannot relegate him down to just human terms to make him more approachable. Any attempt to do so will lead to distrust because you and I know that humans are fallible. You know it's in your own heart. I know it's in my heart. I know the wickedness that I'm capable of. And I don't trust man the way that I ought to trust God. So any attempt to bring God lower to us only diminishes any trust that we could have in him. The more like us we make God, the more we just trust him. But the more we reflect on God, who God says he is in his word, then the more we begin to trust him. And as a result, I believe we begin to pray to this God. And this is how, this is how reading your word, the word of God and praying cooperate. When we know God through his word, who he reveals himself to be, then we pray to him as we ought to pray to him. Now, what is the basis for us to believe that God will actually come through on the things that we pray for? It's one thing to believe that God is able to do certain things. It's a whole other thing entirely to believe that he actually will do those things. So what is the basis? I mean, sometimes it feels as though like prayer can feel like, you know, flipping a coin, right? Is God going to say yes or is he going to say no? You know, and what, what kind of basis do we have for even going to God with our prayers? It's incredibly important to understand a basis. If, if my kids were to ask me for a glass of water, um, or me or my wife, then we would get them a glass of water. Why? Because they're my kids. We're their mom and dad. We provide for them. We take care of them. We protect them. And how do they know that? They know that because they know us. And because they know us, they trust us. It's our relationship with our kids 
that gives the foundation or the basis for their request, for them being able to ask us something. But it's also the basis for them receiving on those requests. That's a lot of power to have as a kid. That I, I can go to my mom or dad and I can ask them for this and know that it, because I'm their son or daughter, they're going to listen to me. And because I'm their son or their daughter, they're going to give to me. That's a lot of power to cash in on. Because we love our children, we want to give them good things. But because they are young and, and they don't always know what's best for them, oftentimes we say no. We just love you too much. No. I think this is the essence. It's not a perfect picture, but it's the essence of what Paul is trying to say in, in the back half of verse 20 here when he says that, that God is able to do far more than all that we could ask or think according to the power that is at work within them. According to or in proportion to the power that is at work within them. What is this power? We've already looked at a little bit in the prayers of Paul here. Power also translated mainly in the Gospels as miracle. After the Gospels, we see the word pop up in places, notably like in Ephesians 1 again, um, which tells us that it is the power that's towards us. It's at work in us. And it is the same power, actually, that raised Christ from the dead. That power. Romans 1.16 for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. It tells us that this power produces salvation. Acts 1.8 And you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in all Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. It tells us that the power is applied by the Holy Spirit. So the power is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. It is the power that produces salvation. And it is applied by the Holy Spirit. It's funny when you look at when the, the, the Holy in, in Acts 1.8 here. When you consider how um, when the Holy Spirit was promised the context of it. The disciples were asking Jesus. Jesus is Jerusalem. Is the kingdom of Jerusalem going to be restored? And he responds and he says. He says not for you to know the times or the season. That the father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power. And what's he telling them? Right in the middle of all this confusion. Jesus dying and then rising again and coming and revealing himself and then promising the Holy Spirit and then disappearing again. All of this confusion, he tells them that what the disciples need, what you need to know is that I will be with you. And you will have what you need. What you need to know is you will have what you need. You do not need to know the time or the place or the reason or steps or how much or to what degree or who or what. All you need to know is now is that I am with you. Because I am with you and because my power is great, great enough to even, yeah, raise the dead, you can believe that I will come through on my promises. That's the power that Paul speaks of. According to that power, he is able to do far more exceedingly more than we could ever ask or think. So Paul says that God is able to do more. He is saying that God's ability is matched by his demonstrated love in Christ. His ability to care for us, church, is in proportion to his love for us. His ability to care for us as his church is in proportion to his love for us. 
Christians, you don't have to doubt the links that God would go for you when, you're under, when you understand the cross of Calvary. You don't under, have to doubt God when you meditate upon the cross. Because there you will see that God's love is endless. That there is no length that God would not go for you. It will produce not doubt, but it will produce faith in you. You do not doubt God will do what he says, but you will live from it and you will pray for it to that end. Verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. What is God worthy of? Glory. 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 Glory in the church. How? Through Jesus. It is the whole glory of the gracious dispensation of this salvation to the church that is to be displayed in God's redeemed people. It is this salvation, this glory that is to be displayed. Ephesians 3 tells us that God, he made it this way. He says, it says in 3.10 that the church is God's chosen way to make his manifold wisdom known. As one person put it, and I love this, the church is the theater of the manifestation of God's glory. The church is the theater of his glory. Like Paul, I, I too pray that we would be filled with the fullness of God. And that the church would be filled with the fullness of God. Not the fullness of ministries and the fullness of, of programs, not even the people. Because I believe that would be putting the cart before the horse. But I pray for the fullness of God, for from his fullness will flow the people and the ministries and the good works and the gospel will go forth in this city of Orlando will be redeemed and families will be restored. The lost and the forgotten will find belonging. Hate will be chased out. Cowardly would be emboldened and the proud will be brought low. The marriages would be will be held as sacred and the endless pursuits of vanity would be crushed. And the glory of God would shine on the city like a sun on a thousand hills. We pray for the fullness of God to come in his church. And so I think the call for us today is this. The call is join the doxology. Will you join the doxology? Are you led to the same end that Paul gets to after he prays these and where he just ends up saying, praise be to God. Praise be to God, to him all glory and power and honor and wealth and dominion. Praise, praise be to God. Will you join in on the doxology? There's two questions I have. When you, when you contemplate the love of Christ, are you led to that end? When you contemplate the depth of God's love for you in Jesus, the height of his plans for you in Jesus, the length of his purposes for you in Jesus. The breadth of his joy for you in Jesus. Do you, like Paul, feel the need to spontaneously erupt in praise to God? It's question number one. That's a long question. When you contemplate God's love for you, do you feel the need to erupt in praise to God? Question two. Do you see your life as a theater for God's glory? So not just in the private or the gathered space of worship, but also in all of your life. 
Is your life the theater for God's glory to be shown? Proper theology, rightly understood and applied, inevitably leads to doxology appropriately lived out. It's not enough for us just to say that theology produces doxology, as we've seen that played out wrongly many times, right? There's all kinds of theology. But proper, right theology. Not just understood, but then applied. Because we've also seen, oh, I know all the right answers. I've been guilty of this too. That, yeah, I I know the right answers. I know what the Bible says, but I don't want to apply those things to my life. Right? But right theology, understood and rightly applied, will inevitably lead us to doxology, lived out in our lives, the worship of God. Theology must be first understood and then applied. Here's basic theology. Basically, if I just summarize this whole passage, Ben, you can come up and get ready to play. Um, here's this basic theology. God is able. Do you believe that about God? God is able. He's able. He's able. He's big enough. He's strong enough. You can ask for the impossible. Because he is able, you can ask for big things. And then we can believe that those things will come to pass because of Jesus. Because through Jesus, the answer is yes, amen. Yes and amen. So here's my kind of homework for you, you know, through this week. It, and, and just to think, and maybe in through the rest of this service before we continue to sing or as we sing, whatever. Um, but as you go, right, this week, if you were just to take those three thing, things this week, God is able. Because he's able, I can ask big things. And I can expect those things to come to pass because of Christ. Then if you just apply those three things to one area of life, what, what would God do in that area? What would God do through that faith and who he is and what he's promised you? Just one area of your life. Believing that God is able. And you can come to him with your big things. You can come to him with your big requests. In closing, Martin Lloyd-Jones tells us this. He says, bring your most daring petitions. Bring your most impossible requests. Add others to them. Let the whole church join together in their wildest desires and demands. There is no danger in exceeding the limit, for his grace and power are such. None can ever ask too much. His power is beyond all that we can ever ask. Amen.